This is a becoming creature. I am your host, Nick, and I am here with the David Chapman of chatting, the Scott Alexander <laughs> of banter, the BMO that goes beast mode. The man's tweets glow red hot. I am here with the one and only Eigen Robot. Eigen, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, you. I, I really appreciate how much fun you have with the openings. Well, I've got to hit you with the spice, that high energy at the start. Yeah. Now, tell me how you started. What were you like growing up? We were all used to this finished product BMO, but what were the early years like? Oh, gosh. Um, well, <laughs> you know, reflexive objections to that characterization aside, you know, and I guess um, I guess when I was younger, I... I was sort of socially isolated, not not exactly, but I um I didn't necessarily fit in particularly well with my elementary school class. So I went to a small Catholic school in um in North Dakota and you know my my parents were professors and um a lot of the other kids had parents who well you know they were townies right there's, there's always that town gown divide and i was on one side of it and most other people that i knew were on the other and so it was it was a little bit weird like i remember first grade my first real feeling of not exactly ostracism but something like it was when i figured out over christmas break that that santa was my parents and and I, I went back to school and I was really excited to tell everybody about this. Like, I, I thought that I had something. I thought that I had something that was like really important and, and was going to be a real contribution to the class. And so we got to lunch and we all sat at the table at the, you know, the first graders table. And I was so excited. And I told them, I told them that Santa was a lie, that it was our parents, that my parents had been keeping presents in their closet. And I figured it out when they ran indoors because we were going to have presents at a not normal time. And I just laid the entire thing out. And that entire table just went dead silent. I just, no response. And until like the, the deacon's daughter who was sitting at the head of the table, just like, narrowed her eyes at me and said you don't believe in santa do you believe in jesus <laughs> and i i just i had no response to that but but i mean that was kind of typical for how things went for for elementary school i mean it you know i i, I tried to get into sports and i was okay um but you know i didn't follow it religiously and i, I think i had a hard time um connecting with a lot of classmates i, I was a nerd right you know, I had I had some other friends who sort of lived across town who were into video games, which, you know, were not really a thing back when I was going to school in the same way that they are now. Like, you know, you have guys who play Halo um, in in frats and that sort of thing. But like, no, this was this is like late 80s, early 90s. Like it wasn't it wasn't quite such a big thing. I mean, everyone was really into football, basically. And um, I I tried really hard, but I, I just I just wasn't. So, um, yeah, you know, it was, it was, it was kind of, uh, I spent a lot of time feeling kind of lonely and socially isolated, um, and really wishing that I could actually play D and D with people since nobody at school is into it. Or maybe I just didn't have the courage to be like, yeah, D and D, this is fantastic. Let's do it guys. Cause I don't know. I, I think when you're a kid, maybe it was just me or maybe it was everyone else, but, um, how did Dungeons and Dragons even get on your radar at such a young age? Um, so my, my buddy, Josh, who I don't remember what happened to him. I think he was going to a different school, but, um, his, his dad was a geneticist, I think. And we had briefly met in faculty housing and he played D and D and, and like being okay, able to go and occasionally hang out with him across town was how I got exposed to it. So like I went and bought all the D and D books and man, it was great. And I, I almost never got to play, but I definitely read them cover to cover and absorbed all the rules. And it's like, yeah, this is fantastic. I love this stuff. And, you know, I was I was really into Tolkien in, in grade school. Like I read um, I read Lord of the Rings in fourth grade, maybe. And and so like all this stuff was 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 just cracked to me. And, um, you know, not really being able to like lean into it in a social way was 
yeah pretty pretty isolating um and I, I think in some ways i never really got past that until uh until high school which which was sort of a i mean you know like puberty and, and adolescence is a great period of change for a lot of people but i think it was maybe particularly beneficial to me now let's fast forward to present day uh you've said referring to your wife celine that we're gross on twitter but it's nothing compared to real life you have this beautiful relationship with your wife what one bit of advice do you have for people that are struggling but want to be better partners um man that's really interesting i don't know that there's any really generalizable advice is that i think um i mean you know i've been in a lot of relationships that have that have failed but it seems like in each of those like the the causes were pretty idiosyncratic um i'm not going to name any names and i'm definitely not trying to speak ill of past partners but you know like one person was just straight up crazy and, and abusive um and like, you know, that was just not going to work out. And, you know, one person was fantastic and in a lot of ways. And, you know, I loved her family. I wish I could still chat with her dad sometimes. Um, but, but you know, she just had a lot going on. And I think maybe never really got past a lot in her childhood. And so, you know, like we both tried really hard. And, and, you know, I think this is the case in some other relationships where we're both trying really hard, but we didn't quite ever manage to get to the point where we sort of reflexively understood each other. And I mean, a really nice thing with, uh, with Celine and I is that I think we, I, I, we think about things in different ways and it's not like we agree on everything, but there's a way that we communicate what we want in a way that's pretty legible to the other. And, um, then, you know, like the things that we want are, are usually things that the other wants. So there's, I mean, it's not like a, I mean, we mostly just don't fight about. It's like there's a synchronicity, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or like a, something about an inferential gap. I never actually read that essay, but I sort of have an idea of what that is. Um, so, I mean, like in some ways it feels sort of like doing a relationship on easy mode. Um, so, but that doesn't actually help people who are in a situation where it's like, no, man, this is hard. And like, what could, but it matters to us and we want to make it work. And I guess I don't, I don't know. I, I think, I mean, the, the most general advice that you can give somebody is just like, take a step back and pay really close attention to something and then just see why it's working or not working and, and address that. But I mean, that's, that's also, I, I think that's almost universally like the correct thing to do if something is not working is like, just pay attention to it for a while and really think about it. But I don't quite know how to convey what paying attention to things means. So speaking of your wife, uh, as I understand it, when you first met, you were helping her move. No, the reverse. Oh, the reverse? She was helping you move? She was helping me move, yeah. Um, oh. She was uh, she was roommates with Ortho at that point, and she was waiting to start a job. And I don't remember exactly how it worked out, but I mean, she, she just likes helping people move. Helping people move is actually a really good way of making friends. People appreciate it, and so she was a gentleman. She, yes, she she was quite a gentleman. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so um, she, I had all my stuff in storage, and she was helping me take it out of storage and take it over to my new place. And um, yeah, she she had nothing else going on. She was waiting to start working. I wasn't starting my job for another month, so uh, it was it was super convenient. And we knew each other from. Twitter. I might have been the second follower she had. Um, so I, I mean, I knew who she was via Twitter, but I don't know that I'd met her apart from that. I should probably remember that, but I don't. Um, so anyway, it was great. And, you know, we, we had a pretty easy time just moving stuff around. And um, it's, it's pretty easy to have a conversation when you're moving too, because, you know, if, if you find that you get in a good flow with somebody, then you can do that while you're doing other things. And if it turns out it's awkward, then you know, you can at least talk about 
moving stuff and, and feel some amount of camaraderie as you have boxes. So at that point, how did your relationship develop? Like, did one of you ask the other one out? What happened after that? Um, I was on OkCupid and posting about it. And she went and found me on OkCupid and was like, hey, <laughs> fancy meeting you here. So um, then extremely then online. Yeah, so online. Um, so yeah, I mean, that was about it. You know, we dated for a while and then we dated more aggressively. Um, we had a, we had a really nice afternoon once with, um, a low dose of four Akko DMT. And, uh, I think, I think we started uh. dating more seriously after that, which yeah, approach it, uh, have drugs together. Not like bad drugs, but, um, going on a trip is easy way to hack intimacy. So you two are pregnant. And while doing prep for this interview, I noticed Infinite just on your bookshelf. In that book, the mom's is painted as so nice and so generous that it creates a kind of pathology in her children. Oh. Especially Orin. Uh, so how do you hope to thread the needle between being an ideal parent without making everyone else on the earth seem unacceptably barbaric oh man um it had never occurred to me that that might be a problem i i sort of recall something about that in um herman hesse's siddhartha which i read when i was maybe 15 i didn't understand a lot of it but i do remember that um he is some kind of a saint toward his son and that actually causes problems for him because his son actually wants some amount of fighting or, you know, reflection of, of him being like mad at his dad and his dad just won't get mad. And um, so I don't know. It, it is tricky. I mean, I think, I mean, thinking about my own dad, you know, he was, was and remains like deeply impish and, you know, he, in some ways was kind of at a hard time with me I think because I wasn't necessarily interested in a lot of the things that he was interested in, like uh, jazz, TV repair, um, that sort of thing. We, you know, we're both statisticians more or less. So, so we can still chat about that. And we complain a lot about the state of um, academics, but like when I was a kid, there was, there was this one time when he was repairing the computer monitor and this is one of the old CRT monitors, you know, because, because I'm old and that's what I had. And, um, he he had the case pulled off and he was just fiddling with it. And he was kind of like, yeah, robot, come here. Uh, I, I need you to, uh, to hold this thing for me. I said, all right. And I started reaching into, into the, the monitor case to grab what, what he was gesturing at. And he grabbed my wrist and said, oh my God, what were you thinking, robot? Said, That's a capacitor. If you had that could have killed you. I just saved your life. <laughs> <laughs> and my, you know, my mom screamed, you know, uh, my dad's name. And like, I, but I thought it was hilarious. Um, I was a little bit mad, but I, I don't know. I think you can maybe, maybe if that's something that kids need, you can sort of generate some, some really low key, like barbarity for, for fun. And I think I'm probably good at that. I mean, I, I do that with, with Celine a lot for sure. Like, just, just kind of going about and deliberately making myself a nuisance. I think that's a smart way to go about it, to become either a little bit annoying or a little bit of a nuisance or to create some kind of uh, volatility such that um, not that kids resent you, but such that they're not too comfortable or too reliant. Yeah. Now, I want to talk a little bit about Twitter on Twitter you're always quoting content from accounts I've never seen before and you follow a surprising number of tiny accounts I think you're actually one of my first 30 followers uh, you've mentioned that you spend a lot of time on Twitter but how do you follow and keep track of such a wide range of accounts it just seems mind-boggling um I I guess I wasn't aware that I do that Honestly, I, this was not deliberate, but a good trick is to be much more likely to follow somebody if they have a memorable avatar. 
and and ideally like an aesthetically pleasing avatar so i mean like if your avi is like you know raw i'm i'm a i'm really strong and a monster and i don't don't fuck with me i find i tend not to follow those nearly as much as sort of distinct cute cartoon avies i i think I think that actually conveys a lot about the way that a person is going to handle themselves on Twitter. And also they're just really memorable. So, I mean, an easy way to keep track of who is whom on Twitter um, is, is just like go by Abby's, which tend to stick in my mind a bit more. Um, Yeah, I guess, I guess that's mostly my system like follow people with good avies i mean i never check follower count when i'm interacting with somebody mostly i follow people if they interact with me in replies and in a way that's not really tedious so um yeah i guess mostly i follow people who who seem interesting and like not rude and present themselves with a good avi (laughs) (laughs) i think that's a really good method i'm gonna keep that in mind now you seem to dislike blue checks on Twitter. People uh, that seem to think that who they are offline matters, especially uh, these journalists and especially New York Times journalists. My question about the blue checks is: Let's say they all just went away, um, like there was no more New York Times. Or if the New York Times became unsustainable, what would the outcome of that be? Like, would there be no more hardcore journalism if all journalism just became this this kind of boutique um, blogging? Uh, what would the what would that mean for the news? And is is that even desirable? I mean, I sort of suspect that maybe it has already, and. I mean, media has been through just a a huge number of changes over the course of my life. I grew up in the 90s and sort of developed an awareness of the information ecosystem then. And, you know, there, there there are still journalists around who were more prominent sort of in the 90s and then then later on. And I actually find it really helpful to listen to Bob Wright and Mickey Kaus, who who have a podcast at blogging heads and then they have a like kind of backroom shit talking podcast called the parrot room which is five bucks a month and um you know they, they were both at the new republic in the 90s and then they they had blogs in the early aughts and actually started blogging heads then uh um bob wright did and they talk a lot about the state of journalism especially contrasting it with how it was when they were more prominent journalists and it's um i don't know it 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 f- i think partly i'm really salty about the current state of journalism just because of how i mean frankly fallen it feels to me as an industry but i feel that way about a lot of other things too i mean academia seems like it's just absolutely in a state compared to how it was when i was growing up and when i watched my parents going through the system and and so i question to a certain extent how much of my sense of what the industry should be is just a function of me getting older and becoming more cynical about a lot of things. I mean, if it, you know, if you go back and, and do something like read bonfire, of the vanities by, by Tom Wolf, there are, there's a journalist character in that who, who's absolutely despicable and is sort of a stand-in for, I'm not sure journalism writ large, but definitely for a certain kind of journalism that's being skewered by Tom Wolf. And I mean, I'm just trying to imagine what what sort of figures exist today who have the same kind of prominence that, say, Tom Wolfe did in in the 60s and 70s is this sort of an outsider journalist who was just very capable and, you know, glad to brutalize people who who needed to be, uh, you know, lit up by somebody from the outside. And I, I just don't see a ton of space for that anymore. I, I mean, I think to a certain extent, the dominance of outlets like Washington Post and New York Times has been really bad because they're, I mean, like they're big, but as a matter of ecosystem, like that's, that's almost all that there is that seems profitable. I guess there are TV stations, but that's, you know, all boomers at this point. 
And I, I don't know, it just seems like an organizational monolith and, you know, sort of a monoculture within each of those firms. So like, do I think that we would be better off with no journalism? No, but I mean, I mean, at the same time, it's like, what kind of journalism do we even have at this point? I mean, nobody, nobody covered Hunter Biden. I mean, that was the son of a presidential candidate who was allegedly under, I mean, who, who still is under investigation for, you know, bribery. And I mean, it, it was systematically suppressed. So, I mean, I think people who are like, well, without journalism, we wouldn't have these investigations. It's like, yeah, okay. But it seems like we have these journalists and they're not chasing this stuff down anyway. So why do we have them? I mean, I mean I'm, I'm very much for press freedom. I guess what I just really want is a better press corps. And I mean, maybe we just can't have that. Not only is there no longer a competent press corps, there's no longer a core of people that reads the news. I mean, news consumption is increasingly splintered and increasingly siloed. And I wonder if that bodes ill for the New York Times and the rest in the, in the long term. Maybe. I'm, I'm actually, I, my impression of the economics of this is that the, the real flagship newspapers, uh, you know, newspapers of record are doing very well. In, at least in terms of revenue, I—I I mean, I know, I—we I, could go and look at revenue, maybe, possibly. I mean, those are both privately held firms, but my impression is that subscriber counts of both of those papers have skyrocketed over the last four or five years, and I, you know, it's mostly been to the detriment of local papers, which has sort of gone hand in hand with the, you know, shift toward people only really caring about national news rather than local. We also come up against a problem in science. Uh, you said that both of your parents were psychometricians. Yep. And you've said that psychology is bad. <laughs> <laughs> the social sciences have this terrible reputation, but I'm not sure if there's a better way. Do you think the problem with the social sciences is that they're done wrong? Is it just that there's something fundamentally difficult about doing science on people or is there an angle I'm not seeing? Yeah. I mean, so I, I've got a bunch of thoughts about this, of course. I, I do want to say that partly it's just a problem of social sciences being very difficult to carry out. You know, it, you look at something like physical science or if you look at um, physics or if you look at chemistry, the, the phenomena, the phenomena happen at a level where it's relatively easy to isolate cause and effect um, and to do things like replicate experiments in, in very constrained conditions, you know, eventually like it was difficult at first, but people came up with methods where you can really pick out the, um, you know, specific things that were of interest, the, the level at which the phenomena were happening. And here by level, I mean, you know, like thinking about um, just, just sticking I guess I mean specifically when you're a scientist, you're looking at a series of phenomena that are happening at a certain level of um, physical complexity or even past that, some other kind of complexity. It's like, you know, in a sense, chemistry is a subset of physics, but when you're doing chemistry, you're looking at the, the operation of a large number of particles that interact in ways that are sort of more, more limited, but also, um, more coordinated and systematic than you would expect if you were just looking at each of the individual, you know, subatomic particles acting in unison. Like there are these emergent phenomena that are interesting in a way that's different than the way that each of their constituents are operating. And going up from there, you can look at like when you're looking at the way that specific chemicals operate or, you know, say specific signaling hormones operate in a body as a biochemist might do, they operate in ways that are interesting in a, in a in a manner that is not directly related to their chemical properties. If you look at a signaling cascade, like yeah, there are chemical properties involved, but that's not really a chemical phenomenon in the sense that your body is using these hormones to generate these large downstream effects via you know signaling cascades, and that's not really fundamentally fundamentally chemical. And social science has the problem that I think uh, I mean it's complicated, but if you look at something like economics, which I'm most familiar with, um, and and maybe go like full bore and, and look at something like macroeconomics, you know, economies are really complicated. It's hard to observe them. 
um like it's hard to get clean data about what you might think are you know distinct distinct components of of a macro economy you know we we can measure things but it ends up with us seeing like a state problem where you know we have like we have a bunch of jobs but jobs are jobs are very much not um just something it's not like chemistry where you know you can look at something like you know x oxygen atoms right like jobs have some interesting features that are hard to capture in data and hard to aggregate over and fundamentally when when you look at something like a macro economy like you can sit down and come up with a model that i mean and then you can go and measure it but then there are data problems but you can come up with a model that can say this happened in the macro economy because of this other thing and and typically when something happens you can pretty easily come up with a dozen explanations for why it happened and you know, in, in another setting, you might be able to sit down and run some experiments and say, okay, well, here we we did everything exactly like it was when we saw this happen, but we changed one thing. Or, you know, you change one thing at a time. And by doing this, eventually you can come up with a fairly systematic way of understanding what happened. But, I mean, like, you can't replicate that. You can't replicate a national economy, you know. You can't make, a, you know, 10,000 copies of the United States and and run experiments on each of them and so that that's very difficult um another problem is something like again in macroeconomics if if you wanted to understand the role that banks play in the economy it's probably and i'm not a banking expert so i i think i would be hard pressed to come with specific examples but the way banks operate today is pretty different than the way that banks operated in say you know 1890 right and you can't really draw these generalizations in the same way that you could say in physics when, you know, for the most part, hydrogen is pretty much hydrogen over time, as far as we know. Um, so, so it's like not even that. So there, there are just a huge number of problems and ultimately social science is just really hard. Beyond that, I think a lot of practitioners are pretty bad at it. And I, I include myself in this list. I mean, I was, I was a mediocre. I don't mean to be like puffing myself up as some kind of hyper-competent social scientist. I mean, I, I was fine at economics. You know, I, I got through my generals, um, no problem. Then just like didn't finish my dissertation, but like, or pardon me, my orals, but like, yeah, you know, it's, it's really hard to do research like this, but I think it's worse than it might be because ultimately what tends to be very easily defensible is taking up some methods that everyone just kind of goes in and agrees are the methods that we're going to use. And, you know, everybody uses these methods and then people start to see what the problems of these methods are, but everyone has built these, you know, built their careers around these methods. So nobody really wants to go back and say, well, yeah, I guess everything we've done is shit. And I, I, I mean, econo it's a problem in economics. I think it's much worse in psychology where, you know, everybody just runs these experiments and, you know, using, really pretty terrible methods that have well understood problems but like you know you got to publish and no one wants to lose their jobs so they're, they're just going to continue using them um one other thing that i want to do and i've been talking for a long time and i'm going to stop in a second is um literal banana had a i think a, a fairly dense but very very good essay about indexicality which treats a lot of this in a more coherent way and and i think more systematic way and and some of the problems that social science is running up to so shout out to literal banana and and her her essay on that my take here as someone that hasn't worked in this space is that when we're talking about reproducibility uh, that the social sciences are operating in a changing environment with changing laws uh, my view is that the issue becomes one of the ability to construct a narrative. You can look at the literal way people interpret dreams, for instance, and that might seem like complete nonsense. And yet, if the Tylenol is working safely with no long-term side effects, if the narrative is working and helping, we don't necessarily need a mechanical understanding. If it is merely sensible enough, then the science is doing its job. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm glad you put it like that because it's something that actually makes me very angry. What a lot of social science has done, especially psychology, 
um like over and over again um there's a there's a really good takedown of psychologists that popper did and i don't remember the name of the essay but i used to make my students in econ 101 read this essay where he just savages freudians and Jungians and and all this stuff um but yeah i mean it, it is basically narrative building but these narratives are shit they're terrible narratives and they're replacing folk psychology, which was also just like, here are a bunch of narratives, but they were better narratives. It wasn't some dude like jerking off to, you know, the classics, which, you know, I love the classics, but like, you know, there's, there's, there's more in the classics than people trying to fuck their parents. And, um, just like destroying this absolutely rich folk psychology, which existed. And like, it was a series of narratives, but they worked, they were fine. And, and replacing it with this this shit that, you know, was purportedly science, but it, it wasn't even. It was just him making stuff up badly. And I, I'm, I'm mad about that. Economics is better, at least at, um, at, least at the micro level. Uh, people, people should definitely separate microeconomics from macroeconomics. But yeah, I mean, like if you look at sociology today or, or any of that, it's like, or, or I mean, just just like you talk about narratives, like the narrative in academia at this point is like, well, we need to. I mean, it's just you know grievance at this point, and and I find that really dispiriting. Speaking of dispiriting, your wife has a bunch of threads uh, on meditation, and she talks about how you have this ability to um, do kind of like this high level stuff, like put your consciousness in your toe. Um, I wanted to ask you about your own experience meditating and uh, if, if there's any there there, if it's worth doing and just to put your thoughts out there about meditation. Um, I can say that I don't think I have ever meditated. Um, Celine is definitely into it. I've definitely never studied it and it's not something that I think I've ever done deliberately. Um, there, the, the threads that Celine's um, done, if, if you check them out, a lot of it is like, she'll be talking about being able to do something after, after meditation. And it's like, Oh yeah, I can do that. Like just kind of view the world from the perspective of like my big toe for a second. And like, think about what it's like to exist as my big toe. And then, you know, everything else is just sort of an offshoot of that. And, um, Jesus, it's a little bit funny to me. Um, but, but I, um, you know, to the extent that meditation helps people just kind of occupy novel and hopefully good mental states or like develop some kind of flexibility, I'm, I'm all for it, but I, I definitely don't consider myself somebody who's knowledgeable about meditation apart from just seeing other people do it and maybe taking something good away from it um and it's it's definitely weird to me that i don't know i mean there there are people there are things that people do via meditation that they ascribe to meditation and then i hear about it and it's like oh yeah i can i think i can do that isn't that just a normal thing that you can do um so so i don't know what this says about me or about other people or, or any of that, uh, or, or even about the like validity of meditation versus just like making people notice that they can do things. Yeah. It's, it's definitely confusing to me. And I, I think I have a strong resistance to almost any kind of systematized psychology. And, and this isn't like a, a morally based objection, rather it's just temperamental. Like I, systemization in the sense always is is just kind of um doesn't fit my mental frame very well what does it feel like to be enlightened is that i is that <laughs> i i don't know i mean it um i'm not sure that i am um i don't even know how i would distinguish that from other states i mean yeah i don't know maybe maybe people are I'm not sure everybody's not enlightened in this sense. Maybe they're just not letting themselves be. That's a weaselly answer if I've ever heard one. Well, I mean, like, okay, I don't know what enlightenment is. I, I don't know what it would be like to be enlightened. I know what it's like to be me, but I don't think I've changed that much over time. So 
So some of us are just born with it, I guess. I, I think everybody is. And then people convince themselves that they're not. I don't know. When I've, when I've talked with people about things, I think a lot of people imagine that they have problems like apparently not being enlightened that they don't have. And a lot of solving, like talking with people through stuff that they're doing is just helping them see that there's not actually a problem that they don't have the ability to solve often very quickly. Hmm. Why do you want to punch Brock A? Oh, yeah, man. I, I can't even remember the reason anymore. He was just sort of a dick to me in middle school. And I was having a hard time in middle school as it was. And, and he just kind of like fixated on me in, I don't know, like world studies or something like that. And I, I think he maybe only said a couple of things to me, but man, he, he did it at the right time. That's pretty irritating. Um, I don't know. He's, I have no idea what he's doing with his life. He's probably fine. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I think, think people have like, I think I, I sort of imagine that a lot of people have a memory of someone who's just unnecessarily a dick to them at some particularly vulnerable point in time. And, and that sticks with you. Now, I want to play a bit of underrated versus overrated. What I'm going to do is give you a name and you let me know if you think they are overrated or underrated and why. Oh, shit. Okay. First is Rousseau. Rousseau. Um, I'm going to call him overrated because he's terrible as a human being. Um, I, I mean, just like case in point, right? Like the dude just kept causing problems for himself. He didn't need to, he didn't need to be chasing these mommy girlfriends. He, he could have just like pulled himself together and, and he just refused to consistently over and over and over again. And I don't know. I mean, I, I, I guess he, I think he just needed more people yelling at him over the course of his life. Like just stop, just stop fucking grow up. <laughs> Next up, we have the entire economics department of George Mason University. Oh, good question. Um, I bet that the social positive social impact, I, I'm, I'm definitely going to say underrated. I mean, as far as publication goes, eh, you know, they're fine. Um, but, but I also don't think much of publication for most other economics departments at this point. I mean, I, I don't know. It, it feels like the field had a really good time through a lot of the late, late 20th century. And it's kind of been going on fumes and there's not that much that I'm really interested in at this point. It's kind of a lot of um, normal science without much in the way of positive impact, but yeah, the gym, you guys like they, they legitimately had a major impact on my the way that I view the world, the way that I think about information and processing information. And I think they've gotten sort of more boring over time, but um, their impact on discussion and culture on the internet is massively underappreciated. Yeah. Next up, we have Illidan. Illidan. Um, he is overrated. He's emo. He, I, yeah, he's, he's kind of a Rousseau-like character. Like just, yeah, oh man, I'm tormented. My life is hard. I'm goth. Fuck off. No. <laughs> I thought I was going to be able to trip you up on that one. <laughs> no, I, man, I'm so tired of the, no, man. I, yeah, the, the like tortured dark character, anti-hero stuff. I'm so tired of that shit. And the last one is Nicholas Nassim Taleb. Uh, he's he is so fucking overrated. I, I, this guy has a reputation among economists. Like, okay, let me let me review my complaints about NNT. He's right that a lot of people are idiots, and I appreciate him calling those people out. Unfortunately, he himself is an idiot. He like I've I've spoken with economists who have been to um you know been to talks where NNT showed up and like asked it any questions, got completely shot down by other economists in the room, like just just basic shit. And because he couldn't get an audience for his like frankly 
ide- ideas that frankly were like not remarkable. They weren't new, right? He didn't come up with this shit. He just repurposed it from other people. Like since economists found it tiresome, like he just took it to a, you know, broader audience and, and presented himself as a genius, but like, he's not, he's, I mean, I, I, I just don't have time for him. He's, if he presented himself as an idiot as well, I would have a lot more respect for him, but he doesn't, he takes himself far too seriously for his contributions and like. I don't know. I feel comfortable sitting on the sidelines and calling other people idiots while also acknowledging that I myself am an idiot. And, and he doesn't do that. And it's that extra step that, that I just don't appreciate much. Now you've said that you've been low key anime your whole life. What is your favorite show and why is it Monogatari? Yeah, it's definitely Monogatari. And the, the reason it's Monogatari is, um, you know, it's beautiful. And I guess because it's beautiful, the, the way that it captures sentiment by characters and, um, I don't know, emotional complexity and crystallizes it in a way that's clear and, and understandable by the viewer and does so with just these breathtakingly beautiful visuals and, and interspersing it with, um, like very subtle and complex wordplay and, and, and presentation of, of ideas is it's, it's beautiful. And it also doesn't take itself seriously, even, even as it's doing this, um, you know, cue the main character beating up an elementary school girl repeatedly, for example. Um, so yeah, it's Monogatari. Are you interested in 11th century England? It's not a gotcha. It's just, I'm curious. Yeah, sure. Um, what would you like to know about 11th century England? Well, I actually, I ask because there's a show called Vinland Saga. Have you seen it? Um, no, I didn't know about that. All right. So this is actually my recommendation for you. Uh, I'm just going to briefly read this from Wikipedia. Uh, okay. <laughs> sorry to my entire audience. Vinland Saga is set in Dane-controlled England at the start of the 11th century and features the Danish invaders of England, commonly known as Vikings. The story combines a dramatization of King Knut the Great's historical rise to power with a revenge plot centered on the historical explorer Thorfinn, the son of a murdered ex-warrior. It's both really historical, but really just incredibly animated and, and a wonderful show for real. Yeah, I'm totally, I'm totally into that. Yeah, I um, yeah, I mean, 11th century England. I mean, like you know, uh, just a series of Dane invasions and Dane Dane control, and then you know the, the fucking Normans. Speaking of history, you said that you should study history to understand the times and study heroes to understand how to live. Who are your biggest heroes that you look to to figure out how to live? Did I say that? That's that's really good. I'd forgotten I said that, but I I endorse it. I continue to endorse it. Um, man, it's it's interesting. I think there's a there's sort of an element of who should your heroes be. I mean, I guess it partly depends on what you want to do in life. I mean, if you're a statesman, maybe the set of heroes that you have should be different than the set of heroes that. Um, that somebody else has. And it's, it's actually an interesting question. Like who my heroes are right now. You know, I, I remember in high school, I, I thought Voltaire was the, the coolest guy to exist. Um, I think Voltaire thought so too. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. He, he certainly thought so. I mean, you know, a lot of people in France thought so. Um, but I mean, like, I, I guess as I'm getting older, I spend a lot more time thinking about, like ways that I like who is worth emulating to be somebody that my kids could emulate since I'm, I'm sure they're going to take something from my behavior. Like jokes, jokes about parenting, not making any difference aside. Like I, I think I still just, just comparing the way that I interact with the world and certain odd mannerisms that I've adopted from my own father, you know, um, like, so what, what kind of a hero would be good for me to be around my kids? I mean, um, oh, you know who, you know, you know, who is 
Jean Valjean. I fucking love Jean Valjean. I, I mean, I was talking about that earlier, like as as an example of sort of a um, you know a counterpoint to toxic masculinity. I mean, I, I think you know the guy is incredibly capable, incredibly smart, and he spends a lot of his time just lifting other people up and and doing so in a very conscientious way and you know being being kind of a structure around whom other people can live their lives and um you know he gets he gets portrayed in this way in in the play and i think there's an extent to which people like that don't necessarily make it into books as great heroes all the time and that's not a, a part of a person's you know, part of a man's life in particular that that gets really emphasized right like you know you hear about um everything that de gaulle did in in the second world war and after in france um in in his political life but you know you don't hear so much about how he just absolutely adored his daughter with um uh trisomy what is it um downs and so yeah no he had a daughter with downs and and just just completely i mean like he was he was wonderful to her and um i mean i think that's something that's really admirable and and worth emulating and um i wish that there were more i I, basically those kinds of figures in in shows i mean like i watched kiki's delivery service for the first time a couple of months ago with Celine. And I mean, like, you know, the baker in that show, we were going to, we ended up not doing this. We were going to go to a Halloween party dressed as the, um, as the baker and, and his wife who taking Kiki and like, yeah, I I'm totally into that kind of role model at this point. That's really sweet. How does a Midwesterner tell someone to politely fuck off and die? Um, well, I mean, so okay, you saw that uh you saw that that video with um uh Klobuchar, you know, welcoming Mayor Pete into his role as as transportation secretary and you know, enthusiastically talking about all of these things about him. But if you go back and watch that video, it's I mean, just every single beat is her belittling him and telling him how much she hates his guts. Like, you know, welcome Mayor Pete. I mean, you know, she's she's a sitting senator and she's emphasizing the fact that he's a mayor, you know, and that's all that he is. That's all that he's known for. He's certainly not president at this point in time. Right. She's she's talking about, like, how important transportation is to all of us. Yeah. Uh huh. Like, I, I don't think anybody really believes that, you know, she. uh <laughs> when when she says you know what i think of you it's like yeah she <laughs> she <laughs> you know and it's it's a little bit easier seeing this coming into it where um there's there's kind of like a a well established hatred of of him by her but it's it's sort of like saying things in a way that's not obviously rude but if you were to like if you just pay attention to it and if it could be interpreted as rude, it probably is. And it's probably really coldly rude. Um, sort of a, it almost more like stretched out something like, Oh, bless your heart. You know, like, yeah, that's, that's different is, is universally like that is, that's terrible. I hate it. It's kind of like a code, right? The person that's not paying very good attention might not notice, but the person that it's directed to is going to notice. Yeah, it, it's 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 powerful, right? I mean, like you get to tell somebody to fuck off, but you're not making a big deal out of it, so you're not inconveniencing anybody else. Like, I, I have to emphasize how important it is to not inconvenience other people in the Midwest. Like, you would... I, and it took me a long time to get over this and I'm, I'm still not exactly over it, but just this, um, this aversion to ever asking anything of anybody else. Right. Like the, like, you know, the, the, the passive aggressive, the passive aggressive way of asking for somebody 
to pass you the butter is to ask them if they would like the butter to be passed to them. And the implication is you would like the butter to be passed to you, but you don't actually want to ask them because that creates an obligation for them to do something. So you just like raise the topic and expect them to catch that you want it passed over to you. Um, most people are not quite that, that extreme at this point, but that's the general idea. Like if there's something that you want, you sort of very, very, very indirectly make it known that it might be something that you could enjoy perhaps. And, you know, then somebody just like takes you up on it. And, you know, maybe even in the meantime, like you say, no, 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 that's too much. Just to let them know that, you know, if, if it is actually too much, they don't have to do it. It's kind of like extraordinary, right? So if you call something extraordinary, most people reading that aren't going to think anything of it. But then there's a group of people that recognizes that when you say extraordinary, you're not being positive. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, like if you, if you were to, I mean, that that's the beauty of it. Like, you know, it lets me just let somebody else know that I think this is insane. And, you know, if they blow up at me for just saying extraordinary, like that's a massive overreaction. So you probably shouldn't do that. And um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's very Midwestern and it, you know, I feel, I feel sort of bad about doing it because it is like, it's kind of an aggressive thing to do. And the really adult thing to do would be to just like keep scrolling on. But I, I'm human. It's just Twitter, man. It's how it goes. <laughs> you know, you got to have fun with your brigade. Yeah. Well, I mean the, you know, the other, the other approach is, um, and I, my understanding is that Japanese culture is, is even more Minnesotan than Minnesotan, but you know, just like, uh, I'm going to mispronounce this, but mokusatsu, which, which is just to kill with silence. Like you don't even pay attention to the thing in order to convey the fact that like you have no interest in this and you deeply disrespect it. The Durants predicted that Catholics would outnumber Protestants because Catholics have more children and religion is often passed down. Um, why do Catholics not outnumber Protestants in America? Like what happened here? Why were the Durants wrong? Um, I think it's becoming more Catholic, isn't it? Um, but my, my response to that is that um, like my actual response is that Protestants are like American Protestants are really good at making everything into American Protestantism without changing the labels. It's like American Catholicism is still sort of Catholic, but I think in a lot of places it is just kind of becoming Protestantism. Like, you know, American Judaism in a lot of places sort of vibes to me like Protestantism. Um, and, you know, it's, it's like, this isn't some kind of novelty at this point, but to view social justice culture as yeah, basically Protestantism at this point, just, you know, without an explicit God and, but, but still inheriting all of their, you know, basic, uh, homardiology and soteriology and such like, yeah, I mean like, you know, maybe specifically from Quakers and, and Puritans, but yeah, I mean, like, I, I don't know. I think probably there's not nearly as much of a behavioral difference between American Catholics and American Protestants at this point as there was in Durant's time. And, and my guess is that barring some kind of massive immigration um, that that somehow is not actually absorbed into the broader culture, which seems like a challenge. It, it seems like mo more and more, um, you know, Latinos, Latinx, whatever, are, are, are being like just kind of like sliding into mainstream white people. So I don't know. I mean, like it seems it seems like to me like. American Catholicism is just just kind of being eaten by the uh, American blob anyway. And, you know, like we're Catholic Twitter aside, but like, you know, converts are different. To touch on your earlier point about whether Catholicism is increasing in America, uh, according to Pew, Catholicism and Protestantism are both decreasing over time and atheism is actually flat. Not looking great for anyone, but we do have nothing in particular going up at a radical rate. <laughs> yeah, those are Protestants. <laughs> All Protestants. Yep. 
Now, what are the worst consequences that we're still living with from people that lived in 18th century France? I guess I guess we're just still just dealing with the consequences of of Voltaire and Rousseau and and everything that they ever did. So thanks, guys. I mean, like maybe specifically just this maybe the ways that that hmm i think the idea of deliberately reforming institutions via like specific and and theoretical approaches rather than letting them evolve i i, I basically view myself as a kind of a, um uh burkean in in the way that i imagine it's good for institutions to evolve and both voltaire and and rousseau were just absolute monsters of like saying well i've sat in my tub for a while today or i've cried in my little you know hermitage today for a while and here's how i think society should be ordered and i i sort of in a hayekian sense of view that is like deeply um deeply conceited and i don't have enough respect for human reason to think that we're going to be able to execute on, you know, some theoretical plan. And if you look at any number of disasters in the way that humans have ordered themselves in the last 200 years like that, that kind of hubris seems to be at the front of it. Regarding intellectual integrity, uh, you've said that most textbooks overemphasize what leaders believed relative to who they were. How should the writers of textbooks remedy this in the future? Um, what should they focus on and how can they portray it in such a way that it's uh, more useful for, for those that are learning? Yeah, interesting. Um, so I think I think this is partly this is partly an issue of you know just revealed preference where, you know, somebody can say, this is what I want, but then if you actually make them, you know, take some choice as to what they actually believe, or, you know, take some choice that hinges on what they believe, then, you know, they may do something very different. And um, so I think, I think it's not necessarily like a publisher of textbook things so much as just uh, maybe, maybe just a de-emphasis on ideas at the object level like there's i think there's a lot of really good work that can be done in intellectual history where you know you look at people how people conceive of the world and you know like what sorts of like meta beliefs about things or, or processes they take to arrive at conclusions about like what is a good thing to do or what is a bad thing to do and i mean durant does a really good job of talking through that kind of um that kind of broader intellectual atmosphere at different points in history. Um, what I, um, so, so like in a sense I'm arguing against maybe is like, um, you know, if, you know, if you were to go and look at like some pronouncement of Frederick, Frederick the great about religion that he made to his people, right? Like, does that matter as much as the fact that he was like maybe gay and he worked way too hard and he was a tactical genius and he just like grit through things. Eh, I, I don't know. I think maybe not so much regardless of what his like, you know, stated ideas were. And a lot of object level stuff really gets washed away pretty quickly. Like, for example, I can I can imagine, uh, you know, if, if you look at the career of Joe Biden, for example, and I'm, I'm not trying to pick on on Democrats here. Um, but if you look at the history of like what Joe Biden says he believes in any point in time, like, you know, he was against busing in some way or another. And now he's, you know, um, putting out executive orders about what um, about critical race theory and how it's good to have it in government. And it's like, I don't think he believes either of those things. I think he's you know willing to say whatever is going to like be politically expedient for him at any point in time. And that's fine. And, you know, you can talk about what leaders are saying as far as what they believe. But I think maybe that's less reflective of what leaders actually believe at any point in time than what, you know, pressure groups are actually succeeding at any point in time for, for which policies. Do we want politicians to do what's politically expedient at any point in time? It depends, probably. 
<laughs> it it depends on whether I like what's politically expedient. Um, no, I. <laughs> um, I mean, like, I don't know. I I'm actually somewhat pro corruption in certain senses, like. Um, so so like you know, um, there used to be. I I think we have completely killed off um, earmarking in bills and that's probably made congress work a lot less effectively than it used to be so earmarking was where like you could you know go in and sort of budget item that was almost universally for some crap that you know benefited some specific house or house member or or senator you know and was usually like some some payout for a government facility in their district or some bullshit like that and and basically you would add earmarks to bills that were completely unrelated to the bills in order to get specific sets of votes for those bills and it was you know a lot of the spending was crap and and like clearly a negative for the country um even if it was good for that you know specific specific representatives re-election chances but um if you look at things more systematically it's like they weren't a huge fraction of the budget and they allowed people to make deals that were not just about you know a matter of conscience but that really um like lower transaction costs for making deals across different regions like maybe you know maybe you don't actually care about maybe you just don't care about some bill about immigration right you live in you live in fucking nebraska and immigration i i don't know i assume there is a lot of immigration to nebraska but it seems like a safe like neutral place so like how are you going to vote well you can vote however your party wants but you know, there are going to be people who have a really strong opinion about what should be done with immigration. And, you know, maybe it makes sense for them to like make some minor concession to you to get your vote on board. And, and ultimately like that, that just pushes policy through rather than making everything this really aggressive party line institution. And, um, you know, in, in cases like I think parties are simultaneously both too strong in the sense that, you know, if you break with your party, it's very easy for them to crush you and too weak in, in the sense that they seem fundamentally incapable of passing legislation um, of any type, really, that, that's not along party lines. And the, I don't know, systems worked quite a lot better when we allowed just like a minor level of corruption in the, in the form of earmarks to get things crossed. So, I mean, like, should politicians vote? What was the question? Should should they be like pushing for things that they? Is it good that their stated beliefs don't match up with what they really believe? Probably. I sort of see them often not actually having much of a choice, and you know, ultimately, like my suspicion. I mean, having never been in a position like, say, being president of the United States, my guess is that their their sort of like space of options is actually quite a lot more constrained than people imagine, and like you know. Biden could probably go full bore like, no, fuck it. I love busing, but, but that would cause a lot of problems for him and like prevent him from doing anything else. So like maybe, maybe there are points in time when they can do things that aren't politically expedient, but I think they, they have to be very careful about how they spend that capital. You, at the time of this recording, you have a podcast that's soon to be released. Uh, Do you have any questions for me? about what i'm doing here or uh about podcasting generally yeah um i'm actually curious so you've you've started this this um podcast i think with sort of this idea of like becoming and i'm curious how it's affected you so far like are there major things that you've learned or things that you've changed about your life or or ways that you're seeing the world differently as a result of interviewing people yeah, when I first started the podcast, um, I kind of felt pregnant with the idea. Like I just really wanted to do it, but I also had some some kind of um, ulterior motives that I wanted to increase my ability to ask questions or ask better questions. And I also wanted to spend some time doing active listening as a practice. Um, and both of those things have been very valuable in my life, but there were some things that were surprising as well, which is how different people really are when you, um, 
systematically sit them down and ask them deep questions with intention that what you get back is so different. It's it's so much more um, vibrant and um, so much more wonderful than you would get really on text on Twitter or somewhere else. And it's kind of heartening to see how much more there is to everyone if you do the quality work of sitting them down and and, and being curious and um, exploring things that matter to them. Um, it like you just realize that that is a kind of key to people. Cool. Well, I, I really appreciate that. And I mean, I want to say about your podcast, it's um you're very good at just picking things and, and letting people go off on them at length and, and sort of spinning up these relatively complex stories that they're, they're telling you. And I mean, as you said, it is a space for people to just open up and talk. And I think I've been dominating the, the airspace in the sense that I've just been going on these tears at length, which is not something I usually do in conversations. Um, but, but it's felt natural and I don't, think I've been speaking over you. I think that's what you've been intending for me to do. And I almost didn't notice it until about 15 minutes ago. So well done. I mean, I think you're doing great work here and and I appreciate it. Thank you so much. That really means a lot to me. Uh, Thanks for showing up and coming on and uh, giving me all your thoughts. And maybe I can have you back once your family is nuclear, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, um, you know, I've got five months coming up and where, where I'm not working. So um, feel free to just ping me anytime. And I think I can probably fit it in between, between baby duties. Awesome. Thanks again, Eigen. Thank you for listening. This one was a little bit delayed because I got sick with the coronavirus and I did not trust my brain enough to uh, make this passable. If you're interested in listening to more of my shows, subscribe on becomingcreature.substack.com. To listen to Eigen's show, go to Eigen, which is E-I-G-E-N, robot.substack.com. My art is by Forshaper. My music is by Frank Ivey and Murphy Chicken. Thanks for coming by.